kowai to te maiti. Kapa ko te manu whakatau. E te iwi nau mai hoki mai anō ki te ahikā ko Maraia Rakuraku Māua ko Tānerotu te tēnei, kia ora tātou katoa. It's another jam-packed week of te ahikā, the one, the only Radio New Zealand National Weekly Māori Features Programme. E haere ake nei. How rock and roll is this? Taking the following definition. Devolution. A transfer of authority from central government to local government or a community organisation often refers to a community organisation taking over responsibility for making decisions on delivery of a service, previously the responsibility of a central government agency. And crafting it into waiata, Nga Taonga Korero has Nga Tai Huata talking about doing just that. What is your understanding of a tohunga? A. A long dead tradition of Māori peoples. B. Heebie-jeebies. C. A practice outlawed in the 19th century. Stay with us as Pākehā academic Paul Moon talks about his experience of a tohuna gained in the time he spent with Tūhoi, Hōhipakiriopa, which he has documented in three books, the last of which was released recently, the Tohuna Journal, Hōhipakiriopa, Ruakinana and Maunapōhatsu. Now what would you do if a family cemetery containing the bones of your ancestors ended up on an auction website for sale? Well, listen on, because that's a position a central North Island hapu found themselves in late last year. Oh, aye, kia ora. Aye, tūtahi, nā mihi ki ako e kutau mai nei wangini a atirongo mai hapu. Ki te kōrero ki a hau, e pāna ki ngā ngā take o te marae, o rongo mai, te pā o rongo mai, ki wai o taka. A mihi koua ki a koe, a whakatau mai wangini a tātou. Ana ka huri ki a koutou e whakarungo pikari mai ki tēnei. Kōrero nei ki a koutou. Tēnā hoi ki koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. Hi, so my name is Les Owens. Now, the Owens part is my father's side. But I was brought up on my mother's side. And of course, these are the uh, the Kroa was Tewarangi Takatu, and the Kuia was Rokura Hihira, and she married Tewarangi Takatu, both of uh, Tuwharato descent, and um, they were the uh, the people, uh, my elders, who brought me up uh, from a very little baby, and uh, until uh, until I was able to go out. Uh, so yes, we are Ngāti Tūwharato, Ngāti Rongomei, one of the hapus, and of course Ngāti Hine, and, and I can name a few around as well in the Tūwharato area. So um, I was privileged uh, to be brought up at um, Te Wai and Rokura, very privileged, and, and, uh, and, uh, and of course um, in those days it was even hard for them to send me to school sometimes, so I never got the opportunity to have a lot of uh, education at the Aotearanga Taupo School. Uh, but what um, what the teachers were able to uh, offer me, I've been so grateful. So, koira, leso and so from Rongomai Waiotaka. Rongomai Waiotaka, is that the name of the rohe here? I, uh, the, um, the place itself is uh, Waiotaka. Right. And uh, that's about uh, two k's away from Turangi. Of course, ab- about 45 uh, towards Topo. So Waiotaka is uh, one of the um, areas that uh, actually banks on on the base of the Kaimanua Ranges. Yeah, and of course, Rungumai itself, that's the name of the marae we are at now. Rungumai marae. Rungumai. Aye. Last year, on the 17th of November, a rededication back to the whare, uh, the whare rungomai, and of course the opening of our new whare kai, which we have named Te Mawhai after one of our kuia. So we've not long been um, open, like I say, uh, 2007, uh, November the 17th is when we uh, rededicated back to, the, to this whare. The whare has been here since the 1940s. Uh, that's when it was built. 
but the old people at that time um, started to move away from the area, so they didn't complete a farekai, although they had a fare here, which they used as part of the farekai. Uh, so again, the people started to move away from here because um, uh, their feet became a, a bit wet here. And and what I'm saying here, it was, it was during that time that the, the uh, maybe even earlier, that the waters of Lake Taupo and the waters around were starting to rise and uh, the land was getting wet. And not only that, there was a lot of runoff from the development of the new prison farm that had started back in uh, probably in the 1924s and so there was a lot of runoff coming into the area and it was starting and the people as well were starting to lose some of their land around here so they started to move over to the next marae Angati Hine marae in Korohe and some even went further uh, and saying that they decided that they would move right out of the place and left the marae Moke uh, Moke uh, for a long time. So yeah, the, the rededication was back uh, back to the fare again, where it had been opened, uh, but it had been left derelict for a lot of years. So at the height of there being people here, but how many people are we talking about then? In the 1940s. Uh, my understanding. Um, uh, from my uh, aunties and uncles that uh, this was a pretty vibrant uh, community in, in the 1940s and uh, it was uh, suggested to me that there would have been something like uh, 70 uh, uh, plus in the area oh, 70 plus uh, the families um, were Arihia Fano. Uh, Tewa Fano, the Arapata. I mean, those are the those are the n- names that still live here now. But but then again, there are so many other names uh, that were connected even further back to the place. So I'm I'm just saying the names that we have left here are the Rihia, and of course you got the Kakahi, uh, Tewa, and the Arapata Fanos. Are they the only ones at this stage? Uh, the par sites uh, were up further, and um, and I, as I mentioned earlier, mm. uh, probably you know the 1940s that I can recall from quarter um, or given to me was uh, that that's when the people started to move down further okay. from the uplands where all the food sources were. And the reason for that, a lot of the reason for it was that um, the uh, prison department um, started to develop a lot of the lands that belonged to our people. And, of course, you, uh, they were offering, uh, you know, offering our people uh, probably good sums of, of money, so they called it. Um, to buy the lands uh, and of course it started to push our people further down and down down towards the the lake itself right so the pars are definitely above us now yeah but now they are actually in the property owned by uh, the prison department corrections i mm. it's something we um we don't really agree on in the way that the uh, corrections, the Ministry of uh, Corrections or the prison as we used to call it then, um, we don't agree on the way that uh, the land was taken. Now, I, I did mention that they offered some money uh, for the lands, but there was a lot of pressure behind it as as the research has showed us, there was a lot of pressure behind the way uh, these agents came around to um, uh, to acquire the lands from our people. So something we've uh, never settled with in our minds, and it's still ongoing in our minds that these lands 
they were you know they were acquired. often they were acquired and yeah and uh, we we just can't uh, relax on that because we know in our hearts our people wouldn't have wanted to l give their lands up but uh you know with the offer or whatever it was with plus the pressure well if you don't sell uh we'll take it anyway under a uh, public, public work works act. act so from what you're saying it seems to me that it was a an almost gradual um, moving away from from the Kainga. Aye, it, it is. Um, I mean, they from they, the Kainga Tutu, do they? Yes. Aye. Yeah. And you were moving further and further out into the fringes, which brings me to the current situation with the Urupa that services this part and did so right up until the 1940s. You now find yourself in a position where it's for sale. Yeah, that's correct. Our urupa here is under a uh, sale agreement at the moment and um, it has um, shocked our people and I suppose it's um, trying to keep up with what's happening around us in your own area only to find some of the information out there but not uh, I don't know if you know what I mean but uh, I just feel that um, there hasn't been enough dialogue or consultation with uh, Tangata Whenua or the Ahika uh, to say what's actually going on as far as the land sale is concerned it seems like if a farmer wants to sell his land he he can do that okay, and I suppose that that could be okay but if you have wahi tapu on it, uh, such as our urupa and other significant areas, you would think that the process would be uh, before consent is given for maybe council or whoever's responsible to come back to the people and have a discussion about it. But Liz, I mean, how does a urupa end up being for sale? A hapu urupa, how does that happen? Well, uh, we've got over a bit of a shock there and um, uh, we set up an activity when we found that the um, the land was being sold, including our urupa. How did you find out? Um, we had been told initially by the farmer that his intentions was to sell his lands. And understanding, some of us understanding, that if it had a general title, well, uh, that was well and good for him. What alarmed us was later to, to know that the lands were being sold, including our urupa. And uh, I think it was brought to attention by one or two of our members that uh, there was a... Um, a uh, sale, um, what's it called, the um, the booklet that uh, the agents put out, um, that the land was being sold at when it first came to our attention, and that was uh, roughly just after the opening, after the 17th of November. Right. And to find that, um, that our Urupas were included in that sale. But further down the track, when we investigated, families investigated, found... Uh, reported back to us that um, even Trade Me, uh, they used Trade Me also to advertise the sale of the farm, but uh, the issue is that in that farm sale was our lands. So, uh, well, sorry, I'll start, I'm saying that our urupa was included in that sale. Now, that, that really upset the local people. and um, Has it been advertised as an urupa? Uh, no. no, not that I know of, not that I know of. Uh, I, I don't think the uh, Urupa was advertised that well because maybe even some potential buyers might have had a good think about what they were going into. And of course um, we weren't going to, uh, like any other Māori, uh, we weren't going to sit back and allow our urupa to be part of a parcel of land. Uh, 
to be sold in front of our eyes. So uh, we set up an activity, and it was a a uh, a very good peaceful activity. Um, the forces were around us, uh, and I'm talking about the people, the the combination of Ngati Tuwhareto, who do not agree with why he tapu being included in any parcel of land being sold. And and I can say that uh, clearly and loudly that Tuwharato totally objects to anything like that. And uh, because and then because the challenge was out to the potential buyers and of course the agent who was selling, and also to the farmer to to bring it to his attention that uh, the hapu had some issues that they wanted to sort out with them, and um, so we had. Uh, some great people come on board to support us and give us some direction of what to do. And so, yeah, we conduct, conducted a small activity here, which just, uh, it was just notifying um, uh, people, potential buyers, agents, everyone else, that there is an issue down there, down here. Get here as quick as you can and see what's going on. So we put up signs, and it was clearly stating sacred lands are not for sale. In other words, our wahitapu uh, are not for sale. So how does wahitapu end up being part of a farmland package? That's something that I suppose we never bothered to follow. When the farm was sold, which I understand was agreed upon by the people, the whanau that had farm. They've agreed that the farm can be sold but I don't think when Māori Affairs sold it and on to the the farmer I don't think any of the whānau thought it was a threat uh, that our wahi tapu it's there, it's still there, it's ours and of course he and everyone else should know whether, no matter who it is, should know uh, that that belongs to the people here so uh, I suppose the people may have relaxed and just assumed, well, everything is, is kapai, it's all safe. And um, But at the end of the day, uh, we found that that it, um, it wasn't the case. What, what uh, annoys us is that um, there is a consent process that, that you have to abide by, and it's a, it's a process uh, through consents. And, of course, you are granted a consent to be able to sell the land. And um, within that land, there is um, your wahitapu. And, uh, no, it's just shocking. It's um, mm, it's a little bit hard to <laughs> describe at this moment, but we find it very, very hard for whichever group it is that hands out a consent to allow the lands to be sold, including your wahitapu. And I understand there's a, there's an additional twist to the story in that the person who's actually selling it is to Faretoa and therefore a whanaunga and he actually has links into the whenua here as well. Um, what I can say about uh, uh, the um, the farmer himself, uh, I can say that he is he has got a tuwharato connection, and he can fuck a papa to tuwharato. I can say that, and I could probably say that if we looked hard enough, you could find that he is probably linked to our Ngāti Rongomai Hapu, uh, that's the, the far Nui side of our Hapu, the bigger side, uh, directly to the Fenua, I could not say whether he was directly connected to the Fenua, but definitely I can say he is connected to Tuwharetua. So what is your understanding of Wahitapu, Liz? Uh, kia ora. 
our understanding of Wahi Tapu, and I suppose first and foremost, and uh, and it can't be uh, changed. Is uh, of course our Urupa. That's first and foremost, and uh, that's what we're talking about here today. So that is Wahi Tapu to us, sacred lands. But we also have other levels of Wahi Tapu uh, here, such as where all the pitol were were put. Uh, and and to us over here, uh, my auntie always said to me that we had a, a wahi tapu over there, uh, and and I look, and I say where, and she said by that tree, so that's also a he, he wahi tapu to us as well, and and then we have other significant areas, uh, such as uh, where the Fano lived, but it wasn't just about where they lived it was as as what the sources were within that given area that uh that made them able to to live comfortably in the area whether it be a little bit of rope or in in your uh, repo or whether it be a puna coming out of the the side of the hill and whether it be uh where all the uh the trees were planted for special needs, uh, whether it had been food or medicine. So we have a, a, a fairly wide range of wahi tapu. And if you look at any given area, you could almost say you're getting close to uh, over one-third of a given area has been pretty... It's a wahi tapu to you, to you and your people. What does it mean for Māori as we become more distanced from the knowledge of tapu, where areas are tapu? Yeah, so so the, the land area that our marae is on, it's very, very small. Now, immediately uh, uh, to the thinkers of old, and a lot of the thinkers of today too, is that uh, what's rushing through your mind to think that's all you got, 75 metres by 75 metres for your huge hapu and your manuhiri. What, what's rushing through your mind when, when it's, it's brought down to a small size? And it's because the reasons that the land is thought of uh, just being able to sell, sell off... Um, so is what you're saying, Liz, is that the value of something, why it, while it may look really small, like you're talking about the 75 by 75 metres of the par, the actual value that it has for the people is more immense than that. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. It is. It's, it's in their minds. I mean, um, uh, for a family or a hapu uh, to feel really comfortable is always knowing that they have that extra land uh, around them for whatever the purpose could be, whether it be for a marae hui or whatever. In, in their mind they are feeling that they are, they are getting uh, crushed and uh, it, it's, not a, it's not a good feeling. It's not a good feeling because when, when I listen to our kaumatua speaking on the marae, they're speaking broad. And their boundaries are way out there, and they hit wahi tapu. They hit significant sites, they hit but the in, they hit the heavens. <laughs> That's right. They hit the heavens, and in fact, those a lot of those uh, sites are in someone's hand because of that that selling thing, that sale, in someone's else's hands, and and that's that's confusing. That's confusing for us. Uh, such as this Wahitapu, just get back to that. Uh, our Urupa up there, if it's going to be sold, uh, then how does our Komatua, uh, how does he talk, how does he, how does he collect his words uh, to relate from the piece he's standing by, by uh, to, to those who have gone past? How does he really relate, knowing quite well that the uh, consent may have, the consent has allowed uh, someone to sell uh, that urupa. So uh, that's what I'm talking about. Um, we still like to think 
that all our wahitapu, our uh, urupas, are strong in our kōrero. But if we let it go, if we allow these people and their consents to sell that, if we allow them to sell that... Um, Is it like it will sever that link? It will disconnect the people here at the par mm. with the connection that we have with people who have gone on? Yeah. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Yeah. I, I am saying that the um, the connection to the paipai that we've uh, built for our kaumatua this photo directly behind us is is the paipai for our kaumatua. It has a connection to to that urupa, and if that urupa is sold, uh, then that connection is cut. That connection is cut. Because in terms of Fakaru Māori, we still maintain connections with all things, whether living or dead, nira. Aye, aye. Yeah. The, um, this paipai we're talking about here um, is directly linked to this urupā that this um, hapu are concerned about. So when we need to use that, if it's sold well, how do we get on? How do we get on if it's sold? Kia ora, I'm Mariah Rakraku and that was Les Owens nor Ngāti Tu Whare Toa. That was an interview I did with him a few months ago sitting outside his Whare Tūpuna in Waiotaka and we'll keep you updated on that situation. Black Cats was a Wahine Strong and Kopapa driven band formed in the 80s that in its time debuted many of the Wahine Māori musos still performing to this day. This includes Emma Paki, Katarana Pipi, Kui Wano and Hiniwehi Mohi. One of the original members, Natai Huata, explains in an interview with Hinari Te Ua the inspiration behind the Waiata, Devolution. Devolution is something that's happening right now. It's supposed to be, well, we've heard government say that it's a decentralising of power back to the regions, back through the tribal authorities, um, that people do have a say in, in the resources or where they want to put the resources or how they want to maybe determine their future. Um, I'd like to think that that's what it is. But devolution can be just about anything that anyone wants to make it out to be. Nobody really knows what it is. The resources aren't in place at the moment to educate our people about devolution. It's only people who are in the know. Um, a lot of rangatahi don't know. People like us, we know because we're right into our tribal authority because we know that's where it's at. So we go to all the hui's. We know we have to try and educate our people about devolution. Therefore, how do you get through to rangatahi? You do it through music. So we wrote... Um, Devolution Part 1, Devolution Part 2. Kuruwetere uh, says that devolution is tukurangatiratanga. I don't reckon it is. I reckon devolution is more like mana tangata. It's, devolution is a process. It's not a, it's not a finite, ultimate state. And mana tangata, if you give power back to the people, they have a say, and then you work towards the kaupapa, to me, should be rangatiratanga, which is an absolute finite state, which is something we had you know, before the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi. Um, devolution, it just raised, the first part says, you know, devolution here, hatene mea. You know, what, what is this thing? You know, what is it? And actually, it's good, since we've been recording it, you know, we have a lot of people saying, what is devolution? And, you know, it can be just about anything you want it to be. But if we don't devolve well, then to me, you're going to get chaos, maybe anarchy. Therefore, the education process is the most important thing. You must start raising the question now so it's not like having hidden agendas and when it actually whacks in later on as a, OK, this is a bill, that the people don't sort of go, what you know, what the hell is this? What's going on? Um, that's devolution part one. Devolution part two is very short and it just makes the statement of 
um, devolution is going on right now. Um, you should do something about it. You know, if, if the government's saying power back to the people, well, then you should pick up that responsibility and have a say. Devolution Part 3 hasn't been written yet, but to me, it would be rangatiratanga. You know, like um, the matangirau, at the end of, of the process, you get that ngawari, that calmness, and then, to me, you've got a truly devolved state. Huata no Nati Kahununu. Prior to meeting Hohepakiriopa, Paul Moon, author of now three books on the subject, thought Tohuna was something that had existed in the past, having faded into historical obscurity around the early parts of the 20th century. So it was surprising when he was confronted with evidence suggesting otherwise, in the form of a Tuhoi man from a valley in the Bay of Plenty. And it was the pressure from another source that resulted in what would become a successful five-year partnership and collaboration. She was a mutual friend and she had asked me to consider doing a book about him um, on, on and on for about a year or so. And I kept saying every time she approached me, I said, no, I'm really not interested. Um, I had a whole lot of other books I was working on over that period and I said, look, I just haven't got the time. And, and finally, um, she, she asked me, I said, look, I'll tell you what, I'll meet him, and at least I can then decide you know, if it's worthwhile or not. But in the back of my mind, I felt very strongly um, it wouldn't be worthwhile at all. But I'd go through you know, and just meet him. And um, it was really when I met him, and we were left alone pretty much immediately, and I decided, well, I have to make up my mind for certain. So I just kept asking him and probing him and questioning him for about three hours. We, we talked continually, and uh, within those three hours, I was convinced that there was enough material there for a book, but also that the this was the real deal. This wasn't someone who was just pretending to be a tohunga or trying to pose as one. He really did have the knowledge and the abilities. Which is reflected in the three books that you've written, contained with within them uh, some more practical advice around gardening, around planting, tied into what my view of what a tohunga is. Absolutely, and this is one of the the things that uh, some of the literature that's been produced recently, some of the academic literature has pointed to Tohunga as being really spiritual leaders, and that's about it. But There seems to be a heebie-jeebie kind of thing attached to it too, eh, Paul? Yeah, well, heebie-jeebie yeah. is possibly the right word, or words, yeah. That, that pretty much fits what how, how some people have presented the role. Now, um, what, what interested me was that, I mean, Hoyp and I both had a very strong interest in gardening and, and working through how he approached gardening and not just how he approached it, but how traditionally gardening was approached. It was the very sort of common sense stuff that, that as I say, a lot of academics seem to ignore. They, they focus on the, the sort of, the, if you like, the spiritual dimension or the, the esoteric part of their work, but they miss out the very practical side of things. And these things are important because nowadays people might have a passing interest in gardening. Even if you go back only 50, 60 years, people's lives depended on that, that knowledge. So it was crucially important. Because what came through strongly was um, that there are practical implications and there's such an interconnectedness between us as people and the world that surrounds us. It's very much, very much the case. And this is something that, that does come through time and again, that we're not isolated from our environment, we're part of it. Um, and, of course, that doesn't mean to say that you can't touch the environment. A lot of the time you're killing animals and fish and you're cutting down trees when that's part of what humans do when they're in the environment. But um, there's a way of going about that and there's a way of getting the maximum productivity out of the land, there's a way of planting that will give you the best yield and so on. And all these things are connected together. Now, the important thing about Tohunga is they, they knew exactly how they're connected together. So you can say, well, I'm very good at gardening, but if you don't know why you're good at gardening and how it's going to benefit everyone else, there's not much use of being good at it just for your own sake. And also that it's a two-way process, eh? It's not just one-way traffic where you're just taking. It's like you're giving. So, for instance, around the stuff with gardening, when you're planting plants, you go through a process where you say karakia. So you're asking for permission there because everything has a modi. Yep, and that's right. And you have to, and that, that's the, if you like, the first building block of everything. 
but everything has this sort of life force in it that you have to just just be aware of. And again, it's not something that requires a lot of sort of mumbo jumbo stuff, as some people call it, but just something very straightforward that you have to acknowledge that everything has this force in it. And so, when you do something to something, you effectively tamper with that force, either for good or for bad. So, if if you're cooking a meal and you're in a very bad mood and you're angry or something, um, traditionally the belief was that that bad mood and that anger of yours makes its way into the food, and people who eat it either feel that it doesn't taste as good as it could or they become sick from it. And so not only is it, is it, is, does every sort of item of food and every living thing have this life force, according to this view, but it can be transmitted from one thing to the other. As I was reading the books, I noticed that there, there is an obvious change in pace. What I could put that down to is being in the environment, you know, your thinking gets, your thinking slows down. And it was coming through in some of the stories that Hohepa Kiriopa were sharing around being observant. Well, I think that's part of it. And certainly one of the things of living in a place like Auckland is that life is frantic. That's the nature of it. And there's a good case to be made for going on holidays just for the fact of being able to slow down. And um, certainly most of the time I spent with him was at Waimana in Inland Bay of Plenty, and mainly during the summer months. And things are very slow there. I mean, you can't move too quickly because it just gets so very hot. And so the pace of life is slower, and that does give you a chance to consider things a bit more, to reflect on things and to to see how life can move at a more leisurely pace. And that's it's one of the things that, and it's not necessarily just a Maori thing, it's, it's a general thing in this country I think we're losing, but um, as more and more people get caught up in sort of frantic day-to-day life, they miss that just that time to think about things and to, to sit back and look at nature and think about how we fit in with it. So over what period of time were you meeting with Hohepa? Um, our first meeting, I think, was about 2002, and it wasn't regular. I'd, I'd go down there, um, in, as I say, in summers, in December, January, February. Um, then maybe sometime winter. It, it just depended when we could both have when we both had time available. Then there was a break after the second book where we didn't meet for several months, and then you went to a hospital in Hamilton and. I thought, well, I'll just drive down to see how he is. And we started talking, as we always did when we met, and that's really where the idea for the third book came from um, while he was in hospital. And I, I knew also his health was getting bad. He, he didn't look, at one stage, it looked like he, he wasn't going to make the year. And so um, last year I decided, well, I'll go full steam ahead and finish the third book. What was the response of your Māori colleagues? Well, they were pleasantly surprised. Um, a lot of them knew I was going to see him, and a lot of them knew of his reputation. But I think to start off with, especially before the first book, there was a big question mark hanging over it because Hoop and I made a very odd couple, as it were. We, in a way, the two most unlikely people to ever work together. Why is that, Paul? Well, I think just um, different age groups, different backgrounds, um, different outlooks on life. I mean, I don't think we... Well, I know we didn't see eye to eye on absolutely everything. but um, And so there was, there was that... Um, so people were sort of pleased that you know someone else was at least going to meet him. So my colleagues thought, well, this is good. You're going to sort of meet someone who's very special. But I think they, they thought, well, we're, we're curious to see what comes out of it. And it really wasn't until the book was published. In fact, just before, actually, I had copies of the manuscript, and I, I made a few photocopies of them and gave them to a few people. said, look, I'd like your feedback on it. And I said, yeah, be merciless. <laughs> I'm, I'm not looking for compliments. I just want want to know what you think. And... All the people, and these are people who I trust to be very frank with me, um, they they all said unanimously that it was, well, one of them said it was a life-changing book for them, but the others said it was you know, very, very, very much what they hoped it would be and even better. So I knew from that point that it was touching some nerves. And, and what's really confirmed it for me is since the books have come out, particularly the first one, but um, and also now with the third one coming out, that people are phoning me and, and um, they're saying, oh, look, this is exactly what we wanted and... You know, this this really reminds us of how things used to be or, or whatever. So there's, the feedback sort of confirms to me that it's, it's touched a nerve. It, it's resonated with with people in a sense that they, they know this is real. It's not... Now I don't want to knock academics, but um, it's not something that's been constructed out of a theory or it's not something that's been designed for a journal article. This is this is really about real experience of real people, and that, that's, I think, what resonates with people. I guess, no doubt, uh, you would have faced some criticism, as I'm sure Hohepa did as well, 
about the book being written in English rather than in Te Reo Māori because there are some concepts that are better understood in Te Reo Māori, Nira. Yeah, well, that, that was something that people did ask beforehand, and they also asked, you know, are you going to have a bilingual version of it? And, and that was something that occurred to me as well. I thought, well, as soon as you translate ideas, I mean, you can translate them very well, but something of the essence of ideas can be lost, and it, it, it can become a bit of a problem. You lose some of the sense and, and the mm. meaning surroundings of it, particularly as, as Maori is a very idiosyncratic language, and so a lot of the, the, the words are sort of, they have extra meanings that don't translate when you, when you pass them over into English. So that was a concern. So I, I actually wrote it with him, and I said, what are we going to do about this? And his view was it, it didn't matter at all. He was very clear about it. Um, he thought that there's no problem having it in English. And that, that related partly to his view of English in Maori. And he, he says that they're spoken languages, but one of the real differences between the two is that the way people communicate. He said he was walking down the street a day before I raised this with him. He said he was walking down the street. He saw someone he knew vaguely, another Maori from the area. And um, as they passed each other on the footpath, they just sort of raised their eyebrows quickly at each other, didn't say anything. And he said, that sort of communication is sort of a traditional type that doesn't need words. And he said, if you can understand that type of communicating, then you can sort of cross from one language to another. You know that's an international way that Māori greet each other, eh? <laughs> there you go. Raising our eyebrows. <laughs> I can see you doing it now. <laughs> another point is, how because there's so much information contained in these books, right? How do you avoid it being used as like a quick-fix manual? Um, I think that if you read the whole lot, you, you'll see that it's almost impossible for anyone to do that. And the reason is that the methods of healing, um, the, the various karakia, the prayers and so on, they don't work in the sense of a do-it-yourself book. So you can, you can go through, for example, there's a section in the second book which deals with various medicines and, and various natural remedies for things. Now, a lot of those don't work by themselves. And so people can try them. They can say, well, yes, we're going to mix these leaves together and we're going to boil them and drink it and it's going to make us well or whatever, and it won't work. So on the surface of it, it seems like a pointless exercise. Why would you have a book with remedies that don't work? And the reason they don't work is that you have to have the thinking that accompanies them. You have to be in the right state of mind. You have to particularly know the reason why you're doing a healing. And one of the things that Hoep was moderately critical of was some people who go around doing healings because it makes them into sort of celebratories or they, they think it's, you know, it's good for their own ego that they can go around healing people. And that's absolutely the wrong reason to do it. And so the argument he always put forward was things will work if they're done for the right reason. And so he was emphatic that, yes, these are these remedies, but if you want them to work properly or to their fullest extent, you have to be very clear why you're doing it. And that goes to the whole concept of of tohunga. Um, it comes from two words, whakato, and is the first one, and it's to do with with the idea of planting. And kahunga is the second one, to do with hiding. And the argument he put put to me was like this: a proper tohunga will plant something, plant a, um, a cure, or plant an idea in someone's head, and then they will retreat. They won't watch the cure taking place, and that's important because you don't want to be there when the person gets well. And the reason he said for that is that you don't want to get your ego activated by it. You don't want to think, ah, I've cured them. Because he said to me, Tonga have no powers whatsoever. They're really just there to channel powers that exist. So in his view, he said, God has the power. God works through me to heal people. So it'd be wrong for me to say I've healed anyone. And that was really how the whole thing works. So just to use them as sort of a, if you like, a quick fix book, um, the chance that it won't work. Mm. Now, you did touch on it a little bit about, okay, so Hohepa had the ability to to heal, so why wasn't he able to do that for himself? It's actually one of the most common questions. He, he suffered from a number of ailments, and particularly in, in the last few months of his life, as, he, as they all started to attack him, people were saying, well, look, here's this great tool, and he can't even heal himself. What good is he? The, the point is, though, and this is something that, if you, if you look at some of the 19th century accounts, they all say the same thing. It's very interesting that Tohunga became frequently the sickest people in the community. Mm. And the reason is that they're going around and part of the process of healing is taking the thing out of someone else and taking it into yourself. So, for example, one of the things that we would do would, 
would be he'd have a karakia, he'd have a piece of bread with him and take the, the, the bad spirit or the, the badness out of a person and put it into that bread. He would then eat the bread as a way of digesting it and destroying it. Now, his argument was that over time, the residue of that bad thing from various people would start to accumulate in him. And, um, and that's just one of the inevitable consequences of, of the job, that you do start to build up a lot of the things that you take out of other people. And that's why, as I say, historically, there's, there's any number of accounts showing that um, Tulunga are becoming very sick and dying relatively young because of this. So tell me about some of the other experiences you had on Waimana. Um, well, we, we, we used that. I mean, that's where he lived, so we, we used that as, as sort of a starting off point. Um, and we spent a fair bit of time in the bush, and that was, um, I mean, the bush in the summer at any time is good, but particularly there, there's, there's some stunning scenery. But more importantly, there's, um, there's certain sorts of things that which um, he could have told me about but were much more successful because he showed me. And so we'd go into the bush, and there's one area where um, there was a, a stone, a fairly large stone, almost a boulder sticking out of the ground, and he, as we walked past it, he kicked me, and it sort of kicked me in the ankle, and I thought, well, that's really odd. I couldn't understand it. Um, and it wasn't just a gentle tap either. It was a, it was a good force kick. And um, he could see in my face. I was just bewildered. I thought, what on earth has happened? Why would he do this? And uh, I said, well, what's the story? Why did he kick me? And he goes, does it hurt? And I said, yes, it does. And he goes, Good. You see that stone? I said, yep. He goes, that's one of our traditional boundaries. He said, you'll always remember that stone as a boundary now because of what I did to you. And so the little sort of um, tricks like that, I mean, it might seem funny in retrospect, but it's actually got a very serious side to it because in a community before Europeans came when no one read or, or wrote, the only way you could pass on knowledge was through devices like that. And I can guarantee probably as long as I live that I will remember that stone and that particular boundary. So it's a very good way of passing on knowledge about the community. And there were things like that he did. But also um, various other things. There's one, one day I remember it was a, a perfectly fine day and I went to his place and he, he, said, he got a map out and said, we're going to go here first. He said, when, when you get out of the car, it's, it, it's going to start, it'll be, it'll be completely sunny. But just before you get out, in the five minutes before we, we stop the car and you get out, um, it's going to be raining. I thought, well, that's odd. And then he said, and by the way, after there, we're going to this place. He said, same thing. It'll start raining intensely a few minutes before we park. And as soon as we get to this location, you'll open the door and it'll stop raining and the sun will start shining. And I thought, well, there might be a chance of that happening at the first place, but for it happening twice in a row, the odds are very unlikely, particularly as a, as a brilliantly fine day. But sure enough, the same thing, as, as he said, would happen, did happen. And it started raining intensely. Um, we parked the car. I opened the door. The rain stopped immediately. And um, so, so there's little things like this, and there's numerous examples of what he did in that nature that, that, that um, yeah, just kept surprising me. So there are some people that would say that's just a, that's part of being observant. You know, um, you mentioned about looking at insects, how, how um, Māori could look at insects and birds and be able to tell by their behaviour what the weather was going to be like. Yep, I think that's very much the case. And he had a, a very highly developed sense of observation. And I, I mentioned in one of the books, um, Kayseri came to visit me when he was in Auckland once, and um, there's an olive tree I had that had a bit of a crooked trunk when I planted it. Um, it was just a, a small sapling at the time. But over the years, I'd, I'd straightened, I'd put it, attached it to um, a stick and it straightened up and there were no problems at all. The first thing he did, he looked at it and he said, oh, it used to be crooked. And I said, how on earth can you, can you say that? And there's no signs of it at all. And he said, oh, the tree's telling me. Uh, and it was one of those sort of cryptic comments that invites me to ask, well, how is it telling you? So I asked him, what's it saying to you? And he said, well, he could tell by the way some of the branches had grown that at one stage early on in its life, the tree hadn't been completely straight. And so it's that minute observation that he could make and from that deduce something about the tree. Now, most people who heard that might have thought, well, you know, there must be some almost supernatural power to be able to work out that the tree was once bent, because there's nothing physical in the trunk itself to show that it was. But he could tell just by the shape of the way the branches had grown that that had been the case one day. So it's a, it's a real skill. It's one of those skills I think you only pick up over time. You accumulate over a long period with lots of experience. But it also seems that, and he spoke about this in the first book, 
was he felt that he had been chosen to do these things. Yeah, well, that's very much the case. And this is one of the things that I never quite got to understand. I asked him on several occasions. And, um, but what he did say is that traditionally the tūnga in a community would be chosen by their predecessor when they were very young. And whoever was chosen probably when he was about two years old. Now, what that means is that the tūhunga had chosen had the, the ability, again, the, the ability to observe and the foresight to say, well, this is the sort of person we need. Now, that, that's gone on for countless generations since there were people living in New Zealand, that that, that cycle of a tūhunga picking their, their successor has gone on on that way. Now, what, what happened with Hoipa is he realised that we're living in a time now where you can't devote, or most people can't devote their whole life to learning those skills. So he... He had to make the decision, do I just, when I die, do I let those skills and all that knowledge die with me, or do I pass it on in a new form? And really his decision to pass it on in a new form was where the, the idea for the books came from. So um, it's, it's one of those things, you, you are chosen, but in a sense that part of the system seems to have broken down. Paul Moon and Professor of History at AUT have written three books on Huepa Kereopa. The first one is simply called Tohunga. The second one is called A Tohunga's Natural World, which is about gardening and plants. And the third one, which has just come out, is the Tohunga Journal. Hoheba Kiriopa died on the 4th of September last year. Paul Moon is back next week talking about Ruakinana Manga Pohatu, subjects of Tohunga Journal. Kowaito Tamaiti, Kapa Kotemanu Fakato. Is your child noble like the moor? The moor was considered to be the lordly or noble bird, so the speaker is asking if the child exhibits the attributes of nobility. Ko puke hapo po te maunga, ko waiamoko te awa, ko ngāti konohi me ngāti rangi, o ku hapu, ko ngāti te iwi. Ko upe paenga Maxwell Aho, ko whangara maitakiti tō kuturanga waiwai. He mihi mahana ki nga kai kōrero i tēnei wiki. Ki te whānau kei kunei, i te whare puka puka rātou, ko nga kai waiata, me nga kai rā wiki wiki mihini, ngā mihi e hoa mā. E te iwi, hei a tērā wiki. Mauri ora tātou katoa.